Well, good morning. Good to see you all and be with you today. Awe and wonder. As we come to the end of the summer, I want to invite you to remember perhaps something wonderful that you've witnessed or seen or experienced over the last few months. Because here in the Northwest, uh, summer is, is a season for going outside um, and witnessing the natural world. Um, it, the natural world has this way of drawing us into awe and wonder. Uh, particularly, you know, it's a, it's a common occurrence this time of year to see the Olympic Mountains or the Cascades as you drive down the highway. Um, and there's even uh, those days when towering Mount Rainier is there in front of you. And this rush of awe and wonder comes upon you. The natural world does this, but it can also be terrifying sometimes. This past weekend, I watched with particular anxiety as uh, Hurricane Harvey made landfall in my hometown. And uh, I was worried about my mom, who is still there, and uh, she relies on electric-powered oxygen equipment. And uh, so I was worried, you know, will the power get knocked out? What's going to happen? Is the flooding going to get to her? And I'm, I'm grateful that the neighborhood where I grew up in and, and my mom and, and my family are, are all okay. Actually, we're spared the kind of intense flooding that happened in Houston. But the whole area is still reeling from that, right? Um, and over the course of the storm, the National Weather Service had these different uh, ways of describing what was going to happen. So at first, they were predicting major flooding, which makes sense. And then as the storm intensified, they said, no, it's going to be catastrophic flooding. Uh, and, and that's something that was very alarming. And then they actually added yet another word. They said, this is going to be epic, catastrophic flooding. And there was, there was a meteorologist in Houston who saw that. And as he was reporting, he just paused and goes, I have never heard this kind of language before. The storm has been called unprecedented beyond anything that's ever been experienced. And as, as it was uh, coming up, there were these weather junkies who were analyzing the rapid development of the storm from tropical storm to Category 4 hurricane. And uh, there were these images online that were just mind-blowing uh, as the, the eye of the hurricane intensified and became really defined and clear, which only happens in extremely strong storms. And uh, there are actually these smaller rotations that developed within the eye itself, just incredible and, and, and crazy things. This natural event blew minds, broke records, and demanded both awe and terror as it swept through. And that was this past week. But many of you, the week before, witnessed yet another amazing natural event, the eclipse. I know a few people from here actually went down to uh, witness it in person, to witness totality. And uh, the eclipse left humanity unharmed, but not unmoved. And I was struck by this uh, article that showed up in the Seattle Times a couple weeks ago, right when that was happening. And uh, it describes this experience of awe. Uh, someone described their experience of the eclipse, it's like the order of the universe is out of kilter. He said, I know the geometry of an eclipse. 
I can do the trig, but I don't think anybody can be prepared for what this actually looks like. They interviewed a psychologist who uh, spoke about the experience of awe, and she explained that it takes two ingredients to invoke awe. Uh, first is to encounter something that's extraordinary, but, but second, that it's actually something that upends our assumptions about the way the world works. And so she said that there's this difference between understanding how an eclipse happens and actually watching it unfold before your eyes. There's this part of your brain that's going, wait, wait, that's not supposed to happen. That, that's not how this works, right? Um, something just kind of trips us up. And, and that's what awe and wonder are like to experience. And so there's these extraordinary events that invoke our awe from time to time, whether it's what they're calling a thousand-year flood event, or a rare total eclipse, or even just a day when the mountain is out. And we feel this rush of awe and wonder. And this experience is a grace that everyone gets to uh, see and witness uh, from time to time. But it's actually a foundational experience for those of us who follow Christ. Because the kingdom of God is awe-inspiring and constantly upending our assumptions about the way the world works. We're constantly running into his grace and going, wait, what? That, that's not what I expected. That's not normal. And so as we enter uh, into uh, this today, there are two things I want to highlight from, from kind of the article that I read. And first is that there's a huge difference between knowing about something and being in awe of it. And this would be a good thing to keep in mind as we prepare for the upcoming sermon series, a series of questions and answers to our faith, that uh, those answers will be good and, and uh, will fill us with truth, but to know something and to be in awe of it uh, are, are two quite different experiences. And so that's one thing. Another thing is, is to highlight that one of the key features of awe is encountering something bewildering and wonderful, something that we can't quite understand. So if you want to open up uh, your Bible, if you have it, to Isaiah chapter 55, um, that's the text we're going to be uh, reading this morning. And I think it's one of the many passages that shows us this picture of the awe-inspiring kingdom of God. I'm going to read through it as I preach, so let's pray. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. May we know you this morning, and may we be in awe of you. And as we wonder, may it lead us to worship. Amen. And so as I read through the text this week, I saw four primary movements in it um, that uh, I'm going to talk about this morning. I believe that they're movements that actually depict God's wooing us into wonder. And so I'm going to go ahead and uh, give them to you. I think we have them on the screen. Um, they are invitation, reconciliation, revelation, and exaltation. Now, that's a lot of shun words. So to, to put it another way, um, I think we have this too. Invitation, God welcomes us. Reconciliation, God heals us. Revelation, God speaks to us. And exaltation, God delights us. 
We can think of this whole passage as sort of a sweet meal where we're invited, we sit at the table together, we talk, and we leave delighted with full stomachs and full hearts. And so as I read the text, I want to pay attention to several bewildering phrases that I think this is tacky, but I'm going to call them wonder words. These words that move us to wonder, um, where our hearts and our minds pause, where you say, wait, that's not what I expected. That's not how things normally work. And as we read, may we move from talking about wonder to actually experiencing it. And may that lead us to worship. So Isaiah 55, beginning in verse 1, this welcome invitation from God. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good. You will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. My faithful love promised to David. And so this invitation is so wide and so warm. There's a commentary that I read uh, this week that described it as wide as human need and also as narrow as a single individual. And so the first thing I want to say about this is that this is an invitation for the whole person, both body and soul. There's nothing overly spiritual about the first verse. It truly is an invitation to water and to food. God created us with bodies, and he cares for our physical needs. Whenever Jesus walked the earth, He healed bodies, and he fed stomachs. The gospel is good news for the hungry and for the sick. That God cares for our physical needs. And yet, as we read this, it becomes clear that the prophet is not only talking about physical nourishment. His language shifts from talk of water and bread to listening and giving ear. He says, listen, that you may live. And this reminds me of Jesus' words. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And so God provides good food for our bodies and good news for our souls. Another thing that I want to point out is that this is a personal invitation into a communal event. The text here in in Hebrew is actually switching back and forth between singular and plural when it addresses you. It's it's addressing individuals, but it's speaking of a communal event. So our faith is incredibly personal, but it's not at all individual. That's why the church exists. That's why we gather here week after week. That's why next month we have community groups starting up again. This is a personal invitation into a communal event. And what an event it is, right? This meal isn't measly water and bread, although 
it mentions those, but it's wine and milk and the richest of fare. These items take planning, preparation, time, and resources. Grace is expensive, and God is not cheap with us. Heaven's kitchen does not serve mystery meat, right? He serves us the richest of fare. In fact, he serves us a mystery of another kind, the mystery of the body of Christ broken for us, the mystery of his blood shed for us. Grace is expensive, and God is not cheap. And that leads me to this bewildering phrase, the the sort of the wonder words of this section of the passage, buy without money. What does that mean? You know, as you're reading that, you can't help but kind of go, wait, what? Buy without money. Without money, come buy wine and milk. You know, so on the one hand, I think this prophecy is poetry. And it is a rhetorical device that is meant to make us stop and wonder at it. But I think it's more than just that. I think that it's meant to communicate a certain measure of dignity. That it's not merely an invitation to come and eat, but it's an invitation to come and participate in the preparation of the meal. It's not simply come and eat. It's come buy and eat. That we're not only invited to the dinner table, but we're actually invited to the kitchen with God. That there's coming a day when there will be a great marriage feast when Christ returns. But right now, as the church, we are those who are in the kitchen with God preparing for that meal. We are those participating in the things that God is at work doing. And so we must remember that just as God cares for our whole selves, body and soul, that in our service to the world, we must care for bodies and souls. Often the church has forgotten to care for bodies and only sought to save souls. And often we can become very wrapped up in caring for bodies that we forget about the world that we're called to, the kingdom that we're called to. And so we gather week to week to encourage one another's hearts. We gather in community groups to tend to one another's souls. But may our resources not stop there. Uh, Whatever it may be, whether it's giving to help with the recovery in Houston or simply serving meals across the streets with urban hands. There are countless opportunities to serve both body and soul. So this invitation is one to come and receive the care of God and also to participate in that care and service to others. And as we respond to God's welcome invitation, we then find his healing reconciliation And so let's continue reading in verse 4. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a ruler and a commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations you know not, and nations you do not know will come running to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways, 
and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on them, and to our God, for he will freely pardon. So as we reflect on on these verses, the the reconciliation and healing of God, I want to put some things into perspective. So first, who is the him and the you in verses 4 and 5? Right? At first glance, it's easy to read these as actually addressed to ourselves, uh, which would be great because then we get to rule and command the peoples and they come running to us, right? Some sort of popularity and power. Uh, no, this, this is uh, speaking of David, who is spoken of in verse 3, or rather the son of David, the Messiah. Verses 4 and 5 are about Jesus. He is the witness, ruler, and the commander of the peoples. He is the one who summons the nations and is endowed with the splendor of God. We are those nations who he has summoned, who he summoned to the waters to eat and drink and find rest. We are the ones who have been called to forsake our ways, to change our thoughts, to turn to the Lord. And the promise is that God will have mercy on us and freely pardon us. This is the gospel, that we're reconciled to God. And this is not just a a once and done kind of thing that, you know, we turn to the Lord and we're done. This is a daily thing that we do. We're constantly called to forsake our ways, to turn to the Lord, to be reconciled to God. And this is why We can seek the Lord and find him. In verse 6, we can call on him and sense his nearness. This verse has been particularly comforting to me this summer. We all have these ebbs and flows of times that we desire God, want to follow God. Sometimes I really am fired up and and love God and want to, to follow him. I read my Bible. Other times I'm just not there. And this verse has reminded me that God is always available. That even whenever I'm not paying any attention to God, the call is to seek the Lord while he is near. To call on him and to find him. This is the invitation, right? And remembering that invitation, uh, as we respond to it, we must remember that we don't merely sit at the table, but we actually join him in his mission. And so though these verses, 4 and 5, are not primarily about us, we do, alongside Jesus, witness to the people, right? And that, I think, leads us to another one of these bewildering wonder word phrases, right? Summoning the nations you do not know. What does that mean for us? Who summons someone they don't know? Or maybe to put it another way, who calls someone whose number is not in your phone, right? None of us know phone numbers anymore. Like, if it's not saved there, then you're not going to call them. And so, who summons someone that they don't know? This seems confusing, and I think it's about as confusing as when Jesus said to love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. And just as core to the kingdom of God. You see, as God summons and reconciles all the nations to himself, 
he summons and re- reconciles all the nations to each other. And so that's our call as we live into this. Uh, so sometimes when we go to seek the Lord, as it says, we must remember what Jesus said, that as you come to the, offer, to come to the altar to offer your gift, but you remember that there's something between you and your brother, leave your gift at the altar and go be reconciled to your brother, your sister. That seeking the Lord sometimes looks like seeking reconciliation with one another, turning away from prejudice, from judgment. I think sometimes turning to one another is a place where we experience the grace of God the most. So God reconciles us to himself and also to one another. And so he welcomes us, he heals us, and as we are reconciled, God speaks to us. So let's continue reading about the revelation of God speaking to us in verse 8. He says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. And so the grandness of the words, thoughts, and ways of God are something to be wondered at. Especially as we forsake and turn from our own wicked thoughts and unrighteous ways. The the sight of God's thoughts and ways are wonderful, awe-inspiring. Along with the psalmist we read last week in Psalm 119, we should marvel at the law, the statutes, and the ways of God. But I believe that's actually only half of the awe that this passage has to offer. Too often, these verses have been used as sort of a logical dead end. Have you ever experienced that with these, where when we're feeling confused, uncertain, or encountering, going through doubt, that these verses will kind of get thrown at us, right? We uh, feel confused, and, you know, someone comes in and says, well, God's ways are higher than our ways, so we kind of throw up our hands, guess I'll just never know. Right? I think a lot of us have probably experienced that. And that's true to some regard, but I think that's actually the opposite of what this passage is trying to communicate. Because, yes, God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. But this passage likens them to rain and snow, which come down from heaven and yield life. I think this is the bewildering wonder words of this passage. God's word is great, but the wonder of it is that the word of God came and dwelt among us in the person of Christ. That though God's ways are higher than our ways, that though God's words are beyond us, that God has come to us. That even now the spirit dwells within and waters our hearts, making them bud and flourish, 
granting us life. And so, you know, last week we talked about the law in Psalm 119, and that goes hand in hand with the week before, if you were here, talking about the law being written on our hearts. God's ways are higher than our ways, but his word has come to us, and it does not return empty. And so we read the word of God in scriptures, and we're filled with the Spirit, and may that lead us to worshiping Christ, who is in our midst. And that's where this passage brings us. As we read the the final couple of verses, verse 12, you will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you. And all the trees of the fields will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the juniper. Instead of the briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign. This will endure forever. So all of this wonder that this passage stirs up in us leads us to worship. Joy is at our backs, pressing us ahead. Peace is before us, beckoning us onward. This is how we live our lives in Christ, and with joy and peace. And so we began today speaking about these natural events that draw us into wonder. But here in this passage, we witness something truly spectacular. Singing hills and clapping trees, right? On the one hand, I think just like buy without money, Uh, This is poetic, you know, meant to kind of shock and inspire us. But I believe that there's something deeply true about it that's not only poetic. Because from the first moment when God spoke, let there be, and breathe life into the creation, creation has truly been alive with the presence of God. And that same creation, which we read elsewhere, is groaning for redemption will someday sing and clap with joy and peace, and that the pain of thorns and briars will give way to the evergreens of juniper and myrtle, the promise of everlasting life. I love that, that these are evergreen trees that that never go out of season, that remain alive year-round. We witness those all the time here in the Northwest. And it says, all of this is for the Lord's renown. This is what God should be known for. Welcoming, healing, speaking, and delighting. This is who God is. And this is what he does. And so, in that article that I mentioned at the beginning, they described how scientists are beginning to study awe. And what they do is they, they show their subjects these, you know, stirring visas, nature videos, photos of natural wonders. And the experiments have revealed that after experiencing awe, people report feeling more compassionate, generous, and helpful than those who experienced other emotional states. And I guess all I can say is I'm glad that science is catching up. Because this is something that we have known and practiced for centuries. 
This is why we, why the church has gathered week after week. This is why we've paused to pray. This is why we meditate on the scriptures. Because wonder leads us to worship, and worship transforms us. That as we awe in the majesty of God, that our lives are transformed. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And so, may our lives be marked with the awe and wonder of God. And may God transform us as we live lives of worship to him. Amen.